table is set for another Literary Roundtable, where we serve you the perfect pairing of author and expert. No book or subject is off limits at the only place on the net where you can join in the discussion and ask our guests any questions you like. So pull up a chair and join the discussion. Welcome to the Literary Roundtable. I'd like to welcome everyone to part one of our five-part series on the Literary Roundtable we're calling A House United, Understanding America and Each Other. The purpose of this series is to discuss the many reasons why our country has become so divisive and how we might start the process of healing our divided nation. Today, we are joined by two guests. Our first guest is author Antonio Elmali. He's the author of the Civil War and Reconstruction novel titled The Ones They Left Behind. This book is a powerful story about the journey one Civil War veteran takes to heal a divided nation. It is set in post-Civil War America and contains many parallels between America during Reconstruction and America today, and we'll talk about many of those parallels in the coming hour. Also joining us here today at the Literary Roundtable is John Blake, a writer and producer for CNN.com. He's also the author of a fantastic book titled Children of the Movement. He's been honored by the Society of Professional Journalists, the Associated Press, and the American Academy of Religion. For CNN.com, he writes about race, religion, and politics, among many other topics. If you haven't read either one of these gentlemen's books, I urge you to go out and get a copy. They are both enlightening and extremely well-written. Thank you both for joining us today here at the Literary Roundtable. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I said in the opening that the purpose of this series is to discuss the many reasons why our country has become so divisive and to try to find out if there's a way we might start the process of healing our nation that seems to have become so divided. I'll start with you, John. What do you think are the major issues causing such a rift in our country? Is there one thing that sticks out to you more than another? Ooh, I think uh, there are a lot of issues, but uh, to me, one of the issues that I don't hear people talk as much about, or maybe in the way that I describe it, is that we're going from this majority uh, white country to a country that's going to be majority minority, as they say. Mm-hmm. And we hear people talk about that constantly, but I don't think people really appreciate how wrenching that kind of change will be. Because if you look throughout history, democracies are rare. There aren't that many democracies right. that work. I think the Greeks really believe that, you know, a lot of Greeks believe that democracy I think Socrates thought it was something that wouldn't work. And people are so tribal that it seems like uh, it's it's difficult to not have a kind of country kind of descended to tribalism. So democracies are rare, but then we have something more. We're trying to have this kind of multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. We have all these different types of groups that are trying to share power with their own history, their own grievances. grievances. And that's what we're going through now. I, I don't see how you do that without having tremendous conflict, tremendous fear, a lot of anger and emotion. And I think that's one of the big things we're going through right now. The haves who have been in power now have to share that power with the have-nots, the past have-nots. But I don't know if they see it that way. They don't, I mean, it's funny. I, I was looking at, uh, listening to Noam Chomsky the other day, and he was saying that the haves never intended to share power, that the way that this country was first uh, – Design, even when we were talking about all men are created equal, there was never intention to have too much democracy. That power would, would always re, you know, reside 
with a certain group of people. And Antonio, you know Frederick Douglass way better than I do. He said that, what, uh, power is never voluntarily given up, something to that effect? Yeah. I think we overestimate how some people believe in democracy. I'm not so sure that a lot of people who are leaders in this country really do believe in democracy, who really do believe that ordinary people should control their political fate. I don't know if I believe that as much anymore. I think to your point, John, about fractured audiences, the irony of these of the splintering of audiences into more and more specific uh, defined groups has the unfortunate consequence of actually making the echo chambers louder. Because as these groups shrink and you realize that you're actually reaching some people who share a like opinion with you, the urge to insulate yourself from disquieting or or borderline threatening different points of view becomes stronger and stronger, especially, to your point, if there's no grounding in a some kind of a democratic tradition that seeks at the very bottom line of it to seek the greater good for the greatest number of people. You could call that a socialistic definition, but I prefer to think of it as a as a democratic one because you know it, it spreads you know, it spreads the wealth uh, more evenly and equitably among yeah. the citizenry. I mean, the, the other point about, you know, what Chomsky said, I think it's true. I think, you know, Joe, to your point, you know, being divisive, we've always been a divided country. And, and what, what I think is starting to happen is that as we peel away the onion of our unsavory history and we find it to be wrenchingly uh, not what we were taught to believe, the disconnect between the rhetoric of an of an ideal idealized America and the reality of an America that's rooted in fundamental undemocratic and basically plutocratic structure, economic structure, is very very difficult for the average folk uh, person to to swallow. And I think that's one of the reasons why history is so shy to what you know. It's it's such, a, in my opinion, a very poorly taught subject because it will not or cannot face you know some of these harsh truths in a in a context that allows people to see that what was going on then is still going on now and it's not a new thing and just because we're starting to wake up doesn't mean that this stuff hasn't been going on since well before the beginning of the republic of the you know the 13 colonies yeah well just a little quick antidote uh you know antonio talked about the fracturing of of people when you hear a lot about how people kind of live in their kind of intellectual ghettos where you only surround yourself with people who look like you and think like you. And what I try to do in my job is sometimes I'll get the people who are angry at some of the things I've written, Trump voters, conservative voters, and they think, you know, CNN is so liberal, and they'll send me kind of hate mail. But what I try to do is to talk to them and establish relationships. And there's one gentleman I've been talking to, and I just asked him, because uh, he talks so much about, you know, people of color and liberals, and I said, do you know any liberals? And he said, no. I said, do you know any people of color? No. He says he's lived in nine different counties as an adult man. I think he's in his late 30s. And he's never known one liberal, never known a person of color. I'm like, how can you make all these assumptions about a group of people and you don't know anyone? And I think there's a lot of people, a lot more people like that who live in these kind of really insulated environments where they make all these judgments about people they have no contact with. And I think to make it worse, there seems to be an elevated sense that ignorance is 
yeah. is okay. You know, it, yeah. it's beyond, you know, ignorance is, is a, is a kind of, a, is an affliction or something that needs to be overcome. Some folks wear ignorance proudly as a way of saying, <laughs> I'm, I'm not touched by, you know, I'm not sullied by these, uh, you know, these, whatever they are, impure or, you know, un-American uh, notions of what uh, democracy is or what, you know, equal, equal equality before the law, whatever you want to, what, you know, whatever the point is. So it's, you know, it, it makes that more complex, which, of course, then makes the, the, the idea or even the task of finding points of unity, you know, steps. I think, John, your, your instinct to engage these folks directly as opposed to, you know, through email is, is, is a correct one, is, is, is probably the only way to actually start, you know, a real meaningful dialogue. And, and yeah. it has to start somewhere. And I think it does start one-on-one, person-to-person, uh, ignoring the where the clothes they're wearing or the buttons they've got on their you know, lapel, whatever the you know the superficial you know symbols of a of a belief system are, to just get through that and say, okay, beneath all this, there are two human beings who are really trying to understand each other. How do we? How do, what does that look like? And it has to start with, what do you think and what do I think? And you know, okay, let's look at that and and ask questions of each other, but do it with a respectful and, uh, you know, a sincere tone. One of the things, John, that you brought up, and uh, you wrote a great article, uh, Four Ways We're Still Fighting the Civil War. It's on CNN.com. Everybody should look it up and read it because it's really great. It is, it is great. Um, one of the points, you talk about four points, four parallels between the Civil War era and today, and one of the points is the disappearance of the political center. And I'm just wondering, with what both of you were just talking about, you, how can you get a political center if you, like John, to your point, what you were saying, for someone that has never met a person of color or doesn't know any liberals? If you only have your belief system and it's the far right and, frankly, even the far left, when, you're, when you only get those extremes, it seems like it would be insurmountable to try to come up with compromiser or, you know, to get to a political center. Could I take a stab at that? Please. I think that one of the answers to that is the political process itself, the partisan politics by its very definition, is divisive. You've got two parties whose agendas are kind of mirror images of each other in the sense that they rely on uh, financial interests to write essentially the the legislation these that these that these different interest groups need so you've got an influence of of money over the over the political process and and so with two parties it's almost by definition going to be divisive because you know let's face it the, the american character is wired around competition not collaboration you know we're taught at young at a young age to win whether it's an argument or a tournament and and that impulse doesn't go away when uh, you know when you get into the uh, the political arena. So my point is, I think that the introduction of another party would be a very healthy thing because I look at the Greens in Europe and they they control a very very small, certainly in Germany, a quite a small percentage of the total population. But guess what? They have an incredible leverage because the two other parties are so fundamentally gridlocked and they can't. Neither one of them can get to a majority that the Green vote becomes a tiebreaker in in a lot of very meaningful uh, considerations. Um, The whole idea of a third party in this country 
is probably, you know, it, it, people talk a good game, but the mechanics of organizing it and all that, you know, make it daunting. But I think it is something uh, worth looking at and, and potentially trying to build because you do need an honest broker when you have two two sides of a, of, a, of an argument constantly trying to entrench themselves deeper into their their positions. Um, well, I think with a, with a to your point with a third party, they tried this particular election cycle, and you can't. Uh, it, it's my belief that you can't just come out of nowhere and try to impact the the presidential election. A third party would really have to start at grassroots. I just don't think. You can go from zero to 60 on that. That has to be over time. And the two parties that are in power right now, Republicans and Democrats, they've been doing this for decades. So to have a third party come in, it would have to be small grassroots. Oh, I totally agree that this is a time-consuming, you know, it's going to be one step at a time over over years. I think a lot of the change that we're aspiring to will not happen in our lifetimes. That's just the way things work. But I also think that political parties come and go as well. I mean, when you look at the history of our country, the now Republican Party was the Democratic Party at one point. I mean, the roles flip as the circumstances evolve. So I don't think anything's written in stone. But to your point, it's going to take, as you say, from the ground up. But it's, it's again, one of, and we're looking at concrete steps, not necessarily a timeline. Right. Could it, could it be something that, that's more immediate to kind of help to, political center that people can rally around like there's a lot of talk about how the, the voting districts are, are drawn and um and i think there's some supreme court cases coming up that will look at that like you look at places like north carolina when you tack you know all all these certain types of voters in one district i think what people do people say we have politicians here who pick the voters instead of the other way around so you know people talk a lot about how for example if you're a conservative republican you don't have to moderate because your party I and mean, your district is 95% conservative and white. If maybe there was a kind of a process in place where we could draw a voting districts that would be, I don't know, not so overtly partisan. It's so difficult, you know, to kind of come up with that kind of formula. But I think there's some hope in that. There are actually three cases that are pending around gerrymandering right now. Yeah, Wisconsin yeah. and North Carolina and I think one other state. And it looks as if the Supreme Court is finally going to it's actually never ruled on the constitutionality of gerrymandering, which is a pretty interesting omission right there. But the fact that they're ta- paying attention to it, I think, to your point, John, suggests that there is another mechanism by which the process can be more even, more fair, you know, fairer, uh, more representative, and less uh, contorted by uh, special interest or whatever you want to call it. You know, because you, you look at these districts and they make no sense. Zigzag and cut across and wander around and you go, well, what does that represent? You know, it doesn't represent anything organic, that's for sure. And, and also there might be things that people can do in their personal lives. I mean, we can, you know, we, we strive for political change, but what I, what I try to do, as I kind of mentioned before, I really try to read things I disagree with. I really try to talk to people I disagree with. And I try to do a lot more listening than talking. Sometimes I'll tell people that I talk to you, I'm not really interested in trying to persuade persuade you. You know, tell me why you think the way you think. And I just listen. And uh, I know it seems kind of simple, but it's kind of hard to kind of listen, at least for me, to listen to people I disagree with. I, my emotions get involved and I want to jump in. But I think it's been a really good discipline for me. And I have established these relationships with people, 
that it, that see things very differently, but I, I sense it's like it's very healthy for me. Well, I'm not kind of like, uh, you know, just demonizing people. I see them as multidimensional, and I hope that they're seeing me the same way. I think there are things so we can, we, I think there are things we can do where we don't even have to wait for the courts or elections that we can do right here and now in our own lives. I totally agree. I, I agree as well. I, there's a friend of mine who is, he just retired. He was a colonel in the Marines, very Republican. He and I went to college together, and I think if, if it wasn't for our past friendship over all of these years, this is the year that a lot of things came to a head, you know, in our discussions with each other politically. I respect him, and he respects me, and I think respecting people you disagree with, that can go a long way. Because there are things, when he talks, he knows much more about the military and budgeting and all of that stuff than, than I do, because that was his life. He tries to educate me on things that I don't know very well, and I try to educate him on the civilian point of view. Because it, when you're in the military, it's, you sort of get indoctrinated to all of that. You live it, you breathe it, your families are around each other, and you do become insulated. It has been very fascinating for me. Uh, his name is Drew. And Drew and I have had pretty amazing conversations where if it was anybody other than Drew, I would have been screaming bloody murder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think respecting and, and listening and learning is, is kind of a big step on that. I also think it's, a, it's an act. It sounds kind of hokey, but I think it's a courageous act to willfully train yourself not to jump in, not to, you know, to stifle the need to be right, to stifle the need to correct somebody if you see that their logic isn't flawless or, or you know, doesn't line up with yours. I think that's courageous to go there and be willing to suspend your point of view in, you know, simply to engage, you, you know, somebody else to see what ground they stand on. I think, you know, I, I suspect that's also a good journalistic trait to have as well, you know, because I know that when I was studying anthropology in college, they said, leave all your assumptions at the door. If you're going to go study another culture, you better be as blank slate as you can be. If you start to allow your own assumptions to filter into your perceptions of another culture or another, you know, kind of set of beliefs, you automatically compromise your ability to see those beliefs for what they are as opposed to what you wish they were or correct them, you know, into something that you can digest more easily, whatever it is. So I think, John, I think you're, you're on it. It, it. It's a daily, it's almost like a daily practice of, you know, not necessarily rushing up to the first person that you suspect of being a Republican, but but not running away from the the encounter with folks who are going to, who, who may have, uh, you know, a different set of opinions and a different set of beliefs. Because I think when you start to really engage somebody, lo and behold, points of commonality start to emerge that you didn't even, re you know, you couldn't have realized were there before until you made the effort. Right. I think the most difficult subject to talk about with somebody that you disagree with is uh, religion and the part it, it should play in our government. Because to me, it, it's a, your belief. It's not something you can point to. There's no scientific method to that. You believe what you believe. And even with um, 
uh, abortion rights or gay rights or some of the things that run counter to many religions, it's hard to have that discussion and to basically be quiet and listen because it's a belief system. And if, if you don't share that belief system, it's really hard to find common ground on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I, cause I write a lot about religion. And it's funny you mentioned religion because just before I called you today, uh, I went on Twitter and I, CNN had published a story I read that I had, uh, something I'd done on the existence of Jesus. And I had all these conservative Christians calling me names on Twitter. One guy called me a coward. And it's, it's really wow. hard to have those kind of discussions. It's like, I think I read somewhere, someone said there's no beast more ferocious than two Christians who disagree. And uh, so it's, it's, it's really difficult, um, <laughs> to have those discussions. But I have found if you're a good listener, if you can know, if you know where someone's coming from, like why they invoke certain beliefs, certain scriptures and all, that makes it, those discussions a little better. It's sometimes it's kind of difficult to have a resolution, like you said, because when it comes to religion, to compromise would be seen as almost like selling out on your face. So it's really difficult. Well, here's the other, to, to the, to the whole idea of what are the expectations around engaging somebody in a conversation? You're not gonna, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's healthy. Right. Sort of check yourself and check your assumptions. Am I trying to convince this person or am I there to listen? If you're there to listen, you could have 17 conversations, still have the same differences, but the real difference is that the intentions have been made clear. You're actually seeking, in the case of the religious person, not to convert the heathen, but to simply share your belief with them and do with it as you will. That's a very different posture from a civil you know, human standpoint than two people coming into the arena, you know, ready to duel. So, right. again, this process of engaging people you don't agree with, I think, has to happen consistently over, you know, it's called making friendships, really. I mean, it's, it's uh, really, you know, when you make a friend with somebody, you don't naturally presume all these differences are going to get in the way of your finding a common humanity. You, you, you find something that engages you and that you feel attracted to, in that person's uh, being. And I think the same thing applies when you're trying to, you know, as a, you know, to, to, to forge these bridgeheads with, uh, you know, one person at a time. Because at the end of the day, I suspect that that's what it's, you know, the true revolutionary uh, movement comes one person at a time. And that yeah. takes time. John, do you think, this made me think of your book, Children of the Movement. Do you think during the Civil Rights Movement, the beginnings of it, you write in the book where there there were a lot of whites involved in the marches, too, uh, in addition to the African-American community. Do you think, what uh, to Antonio's point, friendships were built on that? Do you think that strengthened the movement? Oh, definitely. I think in a way that the civil rights movement is still not properly understood. I think the civil rights uh, movement is seen by a lot of white people as black people complaining. And Martin Luther King is seen as a black leader. And uh, it was a human rights movement. It was much it was much more than about color. It was about other issues, too. And people forget how many white people, union leaders, uh, people that came from other types of movement, people have been involved in India with Gandhi, all these people flooded into the movement. Uh, to really help it. It was, it was multiracial in a lot of places. Typically when you talk about Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964, right. where you literally had white and black people, Jewish people, 
getting beaten uh, and dying next to one another for the same thing. And I think we forget that the civil rights movement has kind of, kind of become this kind of black thing. And I think that's kind of really not accurate and a disservice. I think people also forget that Martin Luther King was actually in Memphis to represent yeah. strike, striking sanitation workers. So I think that his message morphed away from race to poverty, which yes. knows no color. It's, uh, it's completely blind to color. It has everything to do with the way stuff is distributed or not distributed and, and, and who controls all the different levers of of financial uh, power, uh, so he was migrating away, and I don't I don't know that much about his relationship with Malcolm X, but I have a suspicion that even Malcolm X, as early as '65 when he was assassinated, may have been also moving toward the same thing, away from a strictly racial uh, lens in which to view injustice, and starting to broaden it to to talk about you know because when I think about uh, America, it was colonized by you know African Americans who were pulled out of uh, their tribes by you know warring chieftains who wanted to get rid of their enemies, so they sold them to a white slaver who then took them to the you know to the southern shores. But England you know did a class cleansing of its own with its mm. poor white you know that they, they didn't want to have they couldn't stand right. poverty it was a it was almost like you were blamed for being poor so they wanted to get so what did they do they did what they did with australia they they sent the poor uneducated underfed people away so you were colonized mm. you know you had a permanent underclass almost from the very beginning of this country and that has never been i think adequately discussed in the context of economic justice and you know but just you know where we are economically and 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 uh, how unfair the system still is and so i think broadening one's you know one's scope to include these economic issues not simply race or religion is 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 a wise way to go because it really speaks to across the board it's <laughs> an excellent point i i was i wrote a story recently where I wrote something that kind of shocked people, and I mentioned, I said that Dr. Martin Luther King died for poor, white, working-class people. And people are like, what are you talking about? I said, well, when he was assassinated in 1968, he was organizing the Poor People's Campaign. And what was that? That was a multiracial army of poor people, white people in Appalachia, uh, Native Americans, Latinos, black people from Mississippi, who would descend upon Washington and kind of be the forerunner of Occupy Wall Street. And so he, had, he it, pointedly, he would say again and again that my, what I want to do goes beyond black people. I want to help poor white people as well. And people don't get that. You know, he wasn't just concerned about poor black people. It was, it was broader than that. And he died trying to bring forth that vision. But we don't, you know, we prefer I have a dream. I think that what's happened is over time, the powers that be, and I don't want to sound too conspiratorial, but I, for want of a better phrase, have figured out the classic Machiavellian yeah. scheme, which is let's pit right. seemingly mortal enemies together. Let them do all the dirty work of slogging it out in the trenches because guess what? It distracts everybody from the bigger question, which is what is going on with the income distribution in this country and right. the access to you know, to uh, all the things that would make a better life for everybody, black, white, Latino. It's kind of like when I was thinking about illegal immigration, you know, it, it's kind of ludicrous because I looked up and I, and I saw that actual number of Mexicans have actually right. decreased over the last 10 right. years. There have been more Mexicans leaving this country than, than coming in. So this influx that people are talking about for a while, 
It's kind of a strange timing, but more importantly, nobody's asking the question, where are the employers in all this? Well, I'll tell mm-hmm. you where they are. Without employers, well, you know, ready and eager to pay $3 to an illegal alien uh, for what they might have to pay somebody else 12 is, from a business person's standpoint, perfectly logical. You know, the endless quest for for a higher profit margin that can be passed down the chain of whatever the economics are in that particular business. But it's a it's a great place to start from. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that without huge agribusiness or whatever the other industries are that, that really hire a tremendous number of these, these poor unfortunates, they get off scot-free. Nobody questions right. them about, you know, what are you doing here? Why, why are we not focused on that? Because you're creating a need that gets filled by people who have no means of, of defending themselves, no right. means of speaking for themselves, no political right. representation. They're completely yeah. powerless, and yet they're right. the ones who are bearing the brunt of this mass attack on illegal immigrants. And it's just grossly, well, it's blind. There was a similar instance during the Civil War that there were uh, there were many northern workers, like dock workers, that were terrified of free slaves because they were going to come up, move up north into, quote, the free part of our country and take their jobs. Well, there's a classic story of the draft riots. You know, Lincoln had to pull, I think, two Pennsylvania regiments almost off the battle line, put them on trains so they could suppress rioting, rampaging Irishmen who were burning, lynching, you know, black people and burning their businesses because of that very point you you raised, Joe. They were terrified that although they had the lowest rung on the ladder, if they were drafted, you know, the black people would take their jobs and they would come home to nothing. So they were, you know, they were, you know, reacting. They didn't want, they, they didn't want to fight and, uh, New York burned. So the irony of having these troops who were fighting to keep the Union together being pulled off the front to squelch a civil uprising amongst, you know, you know, in the North was supremely ironic for that very reason you point out, that the people, white people were terrified of, especially the lowest on the, on the rung. This may be politically incorrect, but with the way that companies and even agriculture is structured, doesn't there always have to be a boss and doesn't there always have to be worker bees? Isn't there always going to be somebody poor? Oh, the poor you always have with you, huh? <laughs> I mean, it just seems like, honestly, not everybody can be the boss. Right. Yeah, but I, I think there's a certain level of decency and respect you can owe to people, even if they're not the bosses. I was I had this argument over the minimum wage with someone, and he was saying that someone flipping burgers shouldn't make too much money. And I thought of something that Dr. King said that no one who works full time should live in poverty. I mean, it seems like that that's something we can agree on, or that if you work full time, that you should have basic health insurance. I mean, I I don't think people are asking to be rich now when it, when we have these movements for like fight for 15 or stronger unions i think they're asking not to be the boss but for a certain level of basic respect uh, a certain level of, of money where you can not live in poverty and i don't even know if we have that right now i think you're right i think that everybody needs to feel self-respect and when you don't pay people a living wage that's major problems well, but you've got a you've got an inherent financial contradiction. You you have to remember that that company people who run companies they have two different audiences. They've got the larger audience of you know being a multinational and they're American and they wave the flag. But their deeper 
more serious audience is their shareholders. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. people forget that what pressures shareholders put on a on a management are very different than what you know John Q public might put on in terms of pressure. So the idea of you know being responsive to people for you know 5 or 7 dollars you know more and a living wage may strike us as being you know logical and perfectly you know reasonable and just thing to do but to shareholders if they saw that happen and the share prices go down somebody at a board meeting or at a shareholders meeting is going to you know start jumping up and down and demanding scalps because the share price dropped and that that fundamental difference I think is something that people forget when it comes to understanding how companies, you know, do certain things and and what drives them. You know, that plus the short-term horizon as a business person, seeing this time and again, you know, the, the, the time horizon in which business decisions and strategies are developed has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk to the point where it's almost ludicrous in you know, the Japanese, you know, they've got a long, the Chinese, forget it. I mean, they're thinking generations out, you know, as far as how to plan, you know, their economies for whatever. We only think about the next quarter. I mean, the CEOs, you know, their bonuses are wired into what happens at the end of a fiscal year. That's 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 a millisecond in the context of evolving businesses and. Uh, Can I have a question for Antonio? I mean, because I had this kind of debate with the friend. It seems to me. If a business, if the shareholders think more long-term, that it's actually in their interest to pay people better, to treat people well. Because what I've heard is that most, most of the economy is driven by consumer demand. If people are being paid better, they have money, they can go out and buy flat screen TVs, they can buy your stuff. So it, it actually is good for you, not just for workers, if you pay them and treat them well, long-term. Except that a lot of these businesses have migrated multinational. Yeah, yeah. So they're not, they're, why are they doing that? For the very, you know, the holy grail of lower cost of labor. You know, a Filipino who's working in a McDonald's is not going to jump up and down demanding, you know, a dollar raise in the minimum wage because he's just happy to be in the country and escaping from God knows what. So the companies are, you know, they're always thinking about, you know, what, what, you know, what the complexion of the balance sheet is. Is and how that's going to play with the shareholders. But to your point, John, education, educating mm. a shareholder, a smart, you know, uh, like a Warren Buffett would get what you're saying in a heartbeat. You know, mm-hmm. his whole investment strategy is predicated on a much longer, you know, time horizon. But we're so used to, and it's getting worse, I think we're so used to instant results and yeah. fractured attention spans, the combination of which makes it virtually to impossible to, to think of anything beyond, you know, next month or whatever it is. And, you know, it's going to take a lot of education and rewiring uh, shareholder expectations to, you know, to, to, to make that happen. It, I think it needs to happen, but it's, again, one of these, time, you know, very, very time-consuming and long-term uh, evolutions. Do either of you think that there is reason to hope that we will ultimately solve a lot of these problems, or do you think it will just happen sort of through natural selection, or do you think we'll have to fight for it? Uh, you want to go first, Antonio? That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think we're going to have a second civil war with you know armies marching and and invading. 
I mean, I think that what if you if you want to talk about what that fighting would look like, I think it would be more along the lines of Oklahoma City and bombings and assassinations and a you know a consistent and kind of drumbeat of of isolated incidences the incidents that uh, that that demonstrate you know this this incredible gulf. So I don't think you'll have an organized. And if you did, you'd have martial law, in which case we can all start thinking very seriously about something else. Because if we really get to that point, then it would be people informing on each other and the level of suspicion would become so great and people need to just protect themselves at all costs, including, you know, ratting out somebody, even if they're innocent, you know, for being a whatever, would become so rampant that it would be intolerable. It would be, it would be like Germany in the run-up and during the war, where everybody was so terrified of keeping their nose clean that they would, uh, they would, uh, you know, they would turn in their neighbor for suspicion of whatever. And then, guess what? One day that neighbor's gone. So I don't think we would have that kind of massive, kind of uh, armies marching kind of civil war. It would be more what even Lincoln and Grant and Sherman were terrified of at the end of the war, which was this long, protracted, guerrilla war, you know, thousands of Confederate veterans, you know, hardened by battle and being living in the field and embittered by defeat, not wanting to put the gun down, not wanting to let the fight go. And that's why I think their surrender terms were so generous, because they, they wanted to figure out how to pave the way for a, a more just peace and a forgiving peace, and by extension, you know, take off, take away, or at least lessen the risk of the you know, of a of a widespread guerrilla campaign that could be devastating and, and go on indefinitely. But the other answer is, yeah, I do have hope. I think that you know, as we as we evolve and as we begin to take off our blinders, and I'm talking about progressives as well as conservatives, all of us, and we start to face ourselves in a in a more truthful manner. I think that this has to happen. You know, it's almost inevitable. It's kind of a natural evolution. What do you think, John? Well, I'm not as hopeful as you are, Antonio. I, I tell people sometimes, like, uh, say if you grew up in Europe and you saw World War II, or my wife, for example, grew up in Central America. She grew up under dictatorship, Guatemala. That you have a more maybe tragic sense of history where things can go wrong and they don't recover. And I could see that happening in this country. I could see us not remaining a democracy, only in name only. Who would have imagined that a President Trump would be, that he would be president running the type of campaign he did? I didn't imagine that. And I think there are other things I can imagine that seem so far-fetched now, but can come true. And it comes down to this. To me, if you have a country that's demographically is becoming more diverse, but you have the power that sends it around, say, a small group of people, the only way they can keep that power is to subvert democracy. And I have no problem believing that those people would do that that they will subvert democracy, pretty much erode it, make it more difficult for people to vote, lock up people. I mean, just because people are outnumbered doesn't mean they can't hold on to power. I mean, look at apartheid in South Africa. So I don't know if it's inevitable that we will work it out. I'm not as optimistic. I hope so. But I am, to be honest, I'm not quite as optimistic. I sometimes I think it's going to come down to the power, just that the sheer numbers one day will be that those who believe and an inclusive, multi-ethnic democracy will win out. But it will be a nasty, nasty fight. Do you think we're at the beginning, the middle, or near the end of that? 
It seems like it's continuing. It's like, I would say, maybe the middle. I mean, because these issues that we're fighting over, we talked about, we were fighting over this in the Civil War. I mean, it's this tension about what kind of country we're going to be. Are we going to really be a democracy? Are we going to be, are we going to be something else? So I, I kind of think this is a continuing question that this country faces. I, I totally agree. I think that, you know, the, the way that democracy could also melt is, a, to your point, John, when a, a small band of people start to feel like they're losing their grip. Yeah. What do, what do they do? They construe an external threat that take, again, that distracts away from their problems yeah. and then makes them, creates the opportunity to be the saviors. You know, so would this administration be below, you know, some kind of collusion in some an event that that would allow them to sort of, march, you know, ride in on their white horses and rescue people and by extension martial law and all the other things that are with yeah. cracking down. I mean, that that is certainly not... It's been done before. Many, It's a time-honored device. <laughs> you know, yeah. when, when things go south, figure out how to make it, a, you know, create an external threat that will, you know, distract people away from what's going on inside the country. And, uh, and would these guys do it? I think, uh, yeah. They would, but I don't. My my sense is that they have so corrupted their relationship with the intelligence and some hmm. of the higher level echelons of the military that I, I I think it would be very difficult for them to pull that off. I think that there would be just just too much conflicting uh, stuff around it. And I think at the end of the day, some military folks might actually refuse to obey those orders and 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 provoke a real uh, showdown. Before. That sounds like a movie that you're describing, Antonio. Like <laughs> yes, it's seven days in May and everything. I think wow. it does. That sounds like we've been down that, you know, at least in our fantasy world, for sure. Antonio, you have in your author's note. Do you want to read that last paragraph? Oh, yeah, sure. The shooting has stopped, but the Civil War is not over. Its lessons and morals still call out to us, perhaps louder and more urgently than ever before. And its dead still ask us, not just to remember them, but also to dedicate ourselves to finding the ways to unify rather than tear apart this great country, one that has yet to recover from our war. I'd like to thank both of you uh, for joining the discussion today. I'd like to thank uh, author Antonio Amali, the author of The Ones They Left Behind, and also John Blake, a writer and producer for CNN.com and the author of his book, Children of the Movement. Both books you should get and read. They will change your life. Thank you both again for joining us today on the Literary Roundtable. I hope to speak with both of you again soon. We would like to thank you for joining us today on the Literary Roundtable, and we hope that you will join us again soon. Be sure to check out our website at literaryroundtable.com where you can find out about all of our exciting guests that will be joining us in the future. If you would like to submit questions for any of our guests, you can tweet us at, at LiteraryRT, or you can email us your questions to lrtquestions at gmail.com. I'm your host, Joe Marsh, and I hope you will pull up a chair and join us for our next Literary Roundtable, where you are always welcome. Music provided by Jazar and David 
Zestay.